5, verse 20, and read through chapter 6, verse 4. Hear the word of God. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where it reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Before I went to seminary, I worked as a writer in a public relations firm, and my largest client was a chemical company that manufactures herbicides. Now, I know that being a PR hack for a herbicide manufacturer will get you thrown out of certain restaurants, but it was an education for me. I learned a lot about plants, and I learned a certain amount about chemicals as well. My client's biggest moneymaker was a chemical called amazapir. Amazapir stops plants from making the amino acid that they need to grow new cells. Once this chemical is absorbed into the plant, it no longer produces any new cells. The old cells remain, but no new cells are born. For a long while, after you apply this herbicide, the plants look just fine. They don't keel over and die. They don't dry up and turn brown. Nothing dramatic happens. You might even think that the herbicide isn't working because the plants are still upright and green. The only thing that's changed is that they've stopped growing. They've lost the ability to create any new cells on what normally are the growing edges of the plant. And so in July, they look the same as they did in June. And in August, they look the same as they did in July. They've become frozen in time. But guess what happens next? Guess what happens to plants frozen in time? Guess what happens to a bushy two-year-old bramble that stops growing? Guess what happens to a towering 200-year-old oak that stops growing? They die. Completely, totally, irrevocably, in time, they die. In fact, amazapir was the deadliest, the most effective of all the herbicides my clients sold. There were other herbicides that had different modes of action from the one we find in amazapir. A common roadside herbicide is called garlon. The highway department uses it instead of mowers and saws to keep the brush and the small trees from growing into the roadway and blocking visibility. That chemical doesn't prevent growth, but it destroys the parts of the plant that it lands on. 
When you spray garlon on the leaves of the bush next to the road, say on the lower third, on the half that's facing the road, what happens is that those and only those leaves will die. It's a chemical pruning, they call it. In the industry, it's called a side trim. The leaves that the herbicide touches die, and they die quickly, but the rest of the plant is just fine and continues to thrive. Why? Because the chemical, unlike a mazapir, didn't prevent the plant from growing new cells along its growing edges. To the uneducated eye, an application of garlon looks more dramatic and more destructive than an application of a mazapir. Sprayed with garlon, leaves wilt, turn brown, fall off, but the plant as a whole will live, even though it's pruned back a bit. On the other hand, a plant that has absorbed a mazapir doesn't stand a chance. The whole thing will die. And it dies because it's lost the ability to produce new cells along its growing edges. I've seen a 200-year-old, 80-foot-high oak tree killed dead as a doornail by a single squirt of this chemical delivered into a cut made into the bark of the tree. Oh, sure, the tree continued to stand and look normal for a very long time, nothing dramatic. But the growth had stopped, and death was inevitable. This, of course, is a parable, a parable about spiritual life and spiritual growth. This is a parable about churches, young and scrappy churches, old and majestic churches. This is a parable about saints, newly converted sinners, and long-established churchgoers. This is a parable about always keeping our edges growing in our lives and in our congregation. You already know what I'm going to say, but let me say it anyway. If we're not growing, we're dead. If we are frozen in time, we're dead. If we are no longer generating new cells along a growing edge, we're dead. Completely, totally, and irrevocably dead. But on the other hand, we can have bumps and scars and wounds... From the business of being alive, like the skinned knees and the scraped elbows of active children, we can have whole limbs lobbed off by the divine pruning process as God shapes us and changes us into what he wants us to be. As long as we're alive, we'll be growing. As long as we're alive, we will be changing because our life comes from God himself. We trust him with what there will be in our future. We're content to live each chapter of our lives under his hand and his blessing, thrilled to anticipate new chapters in our lives, knowing that he is a good God. He is our good, good father who gives good gifts to his children. We have turned a corner in our march through the epistle to the Romans. You may not have noticed it, but... In our reading this morning, we moved from justification to sanctification. And let me quickly point out the difference. Justification is a matter of our legal status in front of God, the eternal judge, while sanctification is a matter of how holy we are, how much we look like Jesus, how much we are following God's law. Up to this point, 
in the epistle of Romans, Paul has only talked about justification, about our legal status before God. In God's court of justice, there are two and only two possible legal statuses. We're either righteous or we're unrighteous. We're either innocent or we are guilty. We are either justified or we are condemned. Now, the path to condemnation goes through sin and unrighteousness, through breaking God's law. That makes sense to us. Don't do the crime if you can't do the time. But the Bible tells us that no one is righteous. That no one keeps from breaking God's law, which puts all of us into the same predicament. Paul first makes it clear that God hates sin and that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. That's Romans 1.28. And then Paul tells us, none is righteous. No, not one. Romans 3.10. Which means that everyone has a problem with God. It means that God's wrath is directed against all humankind and thinking that we're going to be all right with God if we do a few good works or if we have a few good intentions is pure foolishness. As Paul writes, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. Romans 3.20. And so we find ourselves in a spiritual dilemma. All of us have been found guilty of past sins. And those past sins put us under God's judgment. There is an arrest warrant out for each of us. And on top of that, there is no hope of being justified before God's court by keeping the law in the future. Even if we could perfectly keep God's law from now on, even that won't set us straight with God's court of justice because the past sins still have to be dealt with. And into this awful double bind, this awful dilemma steps Jesus to reveal a new path to freedom, a new path to justification before God's eternal court. Here's how Paul describes it. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Try as you might, you can't be right with God. You can't be justified through your own efforts, through keeping the law. And so God in his mercy opens up a new way, a different way, an alternate way. Righteousness and justification through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul has been talking about for the first five chapters of the epistle to the Romans. The gospel offers us a way to be right with God, a way to be at peace with God, a way to be assured of God's favor in this life and eternal blessedness in the life to come. But what happens after we're justified? What happens after we've been made alive in Christ? What happens after we've been born again? Justification by faith in Jesus, as it turns out, is only the beginning of the story. The rest of the story, at least this side of eternity, the rest of the story is what we call sanctification. Sanctification is about our growing edges. Sanctification is about those parts of our lives where God is leading us and changing us and shaping us and growing us. 
Because none of us is finished this side of eternity. Because none of us is done with what God has in mind for us. And all of us are called to run the race with persistence and to keep our eyes on the prize. Paul asks the Christians in Rome, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Romans 6, one. Are we to remain stuck in our old sin patterns, our old sin ruts, just because God is willing to forgive us? God's grace, which we have received through faith in Jesus Christ, is the antidote to our old sins. Our status as justified, heaven-bound sons and daughters of God's is given to us not because we're sin-free, but because we're forgiven, because we're washed in the blood of Christ. At the Last Supper, Jesus said, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. The sin which threatens to condemn us to eternal separation from God is dealt with at the cross. And when we place our faith in Jesus and his atoning sacrifice, our judicial status before God changes. Our identity changes. We go from being condemned to being justified. We go from being aliens to being members of the household of God. We go from being orphans to being adopted. But the question remains, are we to remain stuck? Are we to remain stuck in our old sin rut and our old sin patterns just because God will forgive us? Now, our mission statement here at HVPC declares that we are a fellowship of sinners, which is factually the case. You have to look around you and you will discover that this is the case. We are a fellowship of sinners. But we say that out loud to remind ourselves that we need God every day, to remind ourselves that we're not any better than anyone else, and to remind ourselves that the remaining habits of sin in our lives will continue to be a challenge for us for the rest of our natural lives. It is the process of sanctification that takes on the remaining sin in our lives. Sanctification is the Holy Spirit-powered, gradual transformation that makes us more and more like Jesus, that beats back, little by little, the power of leftover sin in our lives. Paul wants us to place our trust in the grace of God, to make us righteous before God and justified before our judge. But while we are justified by faith and forgiven of all of our sins, that does not mean that we do not need to continue to battle with sin every day of our lives. We should never be content. We should never be complacent. We should never say something like, Oh, Jesus loves me just the way I am, so I can go on sinning like the devil. Or, Oh, the blood of Christ covers my sin, so he won't care if I sin some more. And trust me, that's precisely what people are saying. That's what people in Paul's day were saying in the church of Rome, which is why Paul has to call them out. When the Romans think or when we think something like, we can go on sinning so that God's grace may abound, Paul says, by no means. 
Absolutely not. In no way, shape, or form. Yes, Jesus' blood covers our sins. Thanks be to God for that grace. But sin is our past. And God calls us into a new and growing future. Paul writes, How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Sin, slavery to sin, is a slow-moving death. Paul names some of those things in Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Impurity, debauchery, idolatry, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness. Those are the things from which we have been set free. Those are the things that belong to our old nature. Those are the things that no longer need to rule us. The Christian life is a new life. It's a growing life. It's a better life. And it doesn't happen all at once. And we shouldn't be discouraged when... We see sin crop up in our lives, but our new life in Christ will begin to emerge along the growing edges of our spirit, and as long as there is growth, there is life. The Holy Spirit, which is given to us along with our justification by faith in Jesus, begins to grow new cells in us. As the Word of God seeps into our hearts and minds, as we spend time in prayer and worship, as we make our home among Christian brothers and sisters, we begin to think new thoughts. We begin to have new feelings. We begin to display new behaviors and new attitudes. Paul names some of those in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Love, joy, peace. Forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That is the new life that you and I have been called to walk in. That's God's plan for God's people. And that process by which we more and more walk in newness of life, we call sanctification. A process that begins the day that we are born again. And doesn't end until we see Jesus face to face. A process that is constantly unfolding along our growing edges by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now I have to confess that I actually have somewhat of a ambivalent attitude toward newness. Maybe it's because that at 56 years old I'm halfway between the cradle and the grave. When I was young... I used to like to travel and to see new things, but these days I seem to be content to stay at home. At this point in my life, I've seen enough history that I'm not too curious 
and I'm not too optimistic about what's to come. But I am fascinated about what has gone before. After all, my daughter Rosie, who teaches high school uh, history in a school in Philadelphia, is teaching the very things that I lived through. You know, Civil War, War of 1812. I value the past. I value the stories that we share about where we've been and where we've come from. I love to see the names of the saints who built and grew this church in past decades on our stained glass windows and on brass memorial plaques. Those are constant reminders to us that we didn't get here by ourselves, but that we stand on the shoulders of earlier generations. I was here at the church yesterday and in my office and I saw a man out on the playground and so I went out uh, to introduce myself to him and it turns out that he had attended third grade here at Valley Christian School 30 years ago and he was just stopping by to look around at the old place again. I love that. I love the difference that this church has made in the lives of so many people through so many long years. It's been 157 years so far. But if I were to tell the whole truth, I have to also say that I love babies. And I love the new people who come to this church. And I love seeing the changes for the better. In the lives of people that I've known now for a long time, I love to see your growing edges. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're not frozen. Rather, they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O God. Newness of life, new mercies every morning. That's what we are to expect from the steadfast love of our never-changing God. Fresh changes and new cells along our growing edges. These are signs that we are alive in Christ. And we see small but concrete signs of that life of our growing edges here in our buildings and the little updates that we're doing around here. Because of the busyness of this place, because of our need for more meeting rooms for our children and groups, the session decided a couple of months ago to breathe new life into an old space that has been collecting dust for as long as I've been here and for many years before. This summer we will convert the entryway of the bell tower into a cozy prayer room. Instead of being a storeroom for a few odds and ends, it will be a beautiful place for elders to meet for prayer before worship services. It will be a useful space for small Sunday school classes. It will be a new gathering point for Bible studies. It will be a new room that Valley Christian School can use, a school that is bursting at the seams. New life in an old place. To my mind, that's the best of all possible worlds, a, a marriage of old and new. And so as I close, let me put the question to you directly. Are you growing in Christ? Or are you frozen in time?
would an objective observer say about you, yes, I see love and joy and peace and forbearance increasing in them. I see kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and goodness and self-control emerging more and more with each passing year. This is an important question because if we're not growing, we'll die. Jesus said, I came that they might have life and have it more abundantly. My prayer for us today is that we would enjoy this abundant life. A life of ongoing sanctification. A life of endless growth in our personal lives and in the life of this congregation until Jesus comes. Amen. Let us pray. Father God Almighty, we do bless your name and we thank you for your word which stands the test of time. We pray that amid all of the changing words of our generation that we might hear your word which is true today as it was yesterday, as it will be tomorrow. Seal this word to our heart by the power of your Holy Spirit. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.